Heart Music You Love here on VOA1. The Hits. Welcome to Learning English, a daily 30-minute program from the Voice of America. I'm Ashley Thompson. And I'm Dan Novak. This program is designed for English learners, so we speak a little slower and we use words and phrases especially written for people learning English. On today's program, you will hear reports from Brian Lynn and Dan Friedel. Later, John Russell presents a new Everyday Grammar report. This week, he describes ways to talk about money. We close with the next part of our U.S. History series. But first, here is Brian Lynn. An 11-year-old girl has died in Cambodia of bird flu. Health officials say it was the country's first known human infection of bird flu since 2014. The virus, officially known as H5N1, usually spreads among different kinds of poultry. Most human cases of bird flu have involved direct contact with infected poultry. The girl who died lived in a rural part of southeastern Cambodia. She became sick on February 16th and was sent to a hospital in the capital, Phnom Penh, to be treated. She had suffered with a fever of up to 39 degrees Celsius, as well as a cough and throat pain. The girl died shortly after being admitted to the hospital, Cambodia's health ministry said in a statement. Health workers took samples from a dead wild bird found in an area near the girl's home, the ministry said. It said teams in the area would also warn local people about touching dead and sick birds. Health Minister Mam Bunhang warned the public that bird flu presents an especially high risk to children who may be working around poultry or collecting eggs from animals. Signs of H5N1 infection are similar to that of other flus, including cough, body aches, and a high temperature. In serious cases, patients can develop life-threatening pneumonia. Cambodia had 56 human cases of H5N1 from 2003 through 2014. Of those cases, 37 were deadly, the World Health Organization, WHO, reported. Worldwide, about 870 human infections and 457 deaths have been reported to the WHO in 21 countries. But the spreading rate then slowed with about 170 infections and 50 deaths in the last seven years. Earlier this month, WHO Director General 
Tedros Adenam Gabriesis expressed concern about bird flu infections in other mammals, including minks, otters, foxes, and sea lions. H5N1 has spread widely in wild birds and poultry for 25 years, but the recent spillover to mammals needs to be monitored closely, he warned. In January, a nine-year-old girl in Ecuador became the first reported case of human infection in Latin America and the Caribbean. She was treated with antiviral medicine. Tedros said earlier this month that the WHO still considers the risk to humans from bird flu quite low. But he warned that this could change in the future, and he urged officials in areas of concern to prepare for possible outbreaks. Tedros advised people not to touch dead or sick wild animals, and for countries to strengthen their monitoring efforts in areas where people and animals make contact. I'm Brian Lynn. A sea creature known as the sunflower sea star was once plentiful in the Pacific Ocean, along the coast of North America. They used to be found in the waters along the coast of Mexico's Baja Peninsula, all the way to Alaska. But in the last ten years, about ninety percent of them have died. Scientists at the University of Washington are trying to understand why the sea stars died. To do so, they are growing them in a lab. The sickness that killed them is known as sea star wasting syndrome. Jason Hoden is the top researcher at the Friday Harbor Marine Lab. He said the sickness. Might have happened because of warmer water caused by climate change. The lab is on San Juan Island, northwest of Seattle. They have nearly 150 sea stars between the ages of one and three. They also have around 5,000 sea stars that are at the larvae stage. They also have 16. Adult sea stars transferred from ocean waters. Hoden called his lab the world's only captive breeding program for the world's only endangered sea star. Endangered means at risk of dying out. The university's neuroscience department is also working on the study. They are trying to find out if warmer water changes the way the stars move. The group is using special cameras to see how the stars move and to create 
three-dimensional pictures that can show differences. The pictures would show differences even with small changes to their environments, such as a small water temperature change. So far, researchers think the sea stars are able to survive in warmer water. That, Hoden said, is a good thing. If sunflower stars are going to recover in the wild, with or without human assistance, Hoden said, they're going to be doing so in a change in climate. I'm Dan Friedel. that you want to talk about money or personal finance. What kinds of terms and structures should you use? In today's Everyday Grammar, we will explore how discussions about money connect with grammar. You will learn about important terms, common sentence patterns, and more. Let's start with some important terms and ideas. When we discuss money, we often use a small group of nouns. Such nouns include money, income, savings, investments, deposits, or withdrawals. But equally important to these money-related nouns are money-related verbs. These verbs include spend, save, invest, make, deposit, and withdraw. Note that there are many similarities between the nouns and the verbs. We use these individual nouns and verbs to express ideas or actions about money. But how exactly do English speakers express such ideas? One of the clearest and most common ways that English speakers discuss money is by using the transitive verb pattern. The basic structure is this. Subject, plus transitive verb, plus direct object, noun or noun phrase. For example, I saved money. The subject is I, the verb is saved, and the direct object is money. Now consider this sentence. I saved fifty dollars. The sentence structure is the same. Subject, plus transitive verb plus direct object. In this case, the direct object is specific, $50. Now consider a more complex discussion. Hi, John. What are you doing? I'm making a deposit. In this example, we have the verb make along with the direct object, a deposit. The opposite of a deposit is a withdrawal to take money out of a bank account. We also say that you make a withdrawal, as in, Hi, John. What are you doing? I'm making a withdrawal. If you want to give exact numbers, you could also use the verb forms of deposit and withdraw as follows. I deposited 
I withdrew thirty dollars. Now imagine a very wealthy person describes how much money they make in a year. They might say, "I make one million dollars a year." Now imagine a person who describes money that they lost. They might say, "I lost one million dollars last year." In all of these examples, we have used the same basic sentence pattern, the transitive verb pattern. Some additional information may be given, for example, the words "last year," but the same basic idea runs through all the sentences. In this way, you can think of the transitive verb pattern as the frame or basic structure of a house. You might paint the surface or outside of a house a different color, but the basic structure under the paint remains the same. So too. Can you make colorful word choices to express different ideas? The underlying sentence pattern, much like the frame of our house, remains the same. Now let's take some time to work with these ideas. Use the noun five dollars and the verb invest to talk about an action related to money. Pause the audio to consider your answer. Here is one answer. I invested five dollars. Now use the verb make along with the noun phrase a bad investment. Pause the audio to consider your answer. Here is one answer. I made a bad investment. Now use the pronoun he along with the verb save and the noun phrase a lot of money. Pause the audio to consider your answer. Here are. Two possible answers. He is saving a lot of money. He saved a lot of money. In today's report, we explored how English speakers use one sentence pattern to talk about money. They use this pattern to talk about many other subjects too. You should remember that English speakers also use other sentence patterns to talk about money. But what you learned today. Was the most common and useful way to talk about money in everyday situations. I'm John Russell. John joins me now to talk a little bit more about the lesson. Hi, John. Welcome. Thanks for having me on the show. You described how the transitive verb pattern is used to express ideas and actions about money. How can a person tell if a verb is transitive or not? That's a great question. The direct object often answers the question "what." For example, if a person said, "I spent ten dollars." You know, ten dollars is the direct object, the recipient of the verb's action, because if you replace ten dollars with the word "what," you get this: "I spent what." The sentence is incomplete without the direct object. That is why we need a direct object. I spent ten dollars, and that is why we say verbs such as withdraw. Deposit, save, and invest are transitive; they need a direct object. We don't say 
I saved. We say I saved five dollars. That's right. Now there are other ways English speakers talk about money, but the transitive verb pattern is a nice place to start. Thanks again, John, for coming on the show today. See you next time. VOA Learning English has launched a new program for children. It is called Let's Learn English with Anna. The new course aims to teach children American English through asking and answering questions and experiencing fun situations. For more information, visit our website, learningenglish.voanews.com. Welcome to the Making of a Nation: American History in VOA Special English. The Spanish-American War took place in the late 1800s during the administration of President William McKinley. On December 10, 1898, the United States and Spain signed a treaty in Paris. Officially ending the war between them, however, the fighting had stopped much earlier. Spain had made the first move toward peace after its forces surrendered at Santiago on the Cuban coast. A few weeks before that, the United States Navy had destroyed Spain's Atlantic fleet. The American naval victory ended any chance. That Spain could win the war. Doug Johnson and Steve Ember continue the story of President William McKinley and the Spanish-American War. Late in July, the French ambassador in Washington. Gave President William McKinley a message from the Spanish government. Spain asked what terms the United States would demand for peace. President McKinley sent an immediate answer. Spain, he said, must give up Cuba. It must also give to the United States the islands of Puerto Rico and Guam. And he said Spain must recognize the right of the United States to occupy Manila in the Philippines. The future of the Philippines, he said, would be decided during negotiations on a peace treaty. McKinley's terms seemed severe to Spain, but Spain had no choice; it could not continue the war. So, ten weeks after war broke out, Spain agreed to stop the fighting and accept the American terms. It signed a peace agreement in Washington on August twelfth. A Spanish note protested sadly that the agreement took away the last memory of a glorious past. It expels us from the Western Hemisphere, which became peopled. And civilized 
through the proud efforts of our fathers. The two countries agreed to meet in Paris to negotiate details of a peace treaty. The talks opened October 1st. The two sides agreed quickly on the issue of Cuban independence and an American takeover of Puerto Rico and Guam. But they could not agree on what to do about the Philippines. At the beginning of the talks, the United States was not sure if it wanted all or only part of the Philippines. At first, President McKinley wanted Spain to give up only Luzon, the main island. Then he decided that the United States should demand all of the Philippines. McKinley explained later how he made this decision. I thought first we would take only Manila, then Luzon, then other islands perhaps. I walked the floor of the White House many nights. More than once I went down on my knees and asked God to help me decide. And one night, said McKinley, it came to me this way, that we could not give the Philippines back to Spain. That would be cowardly and dishonorable. We could not turn them over to France or Germany, our trading competitors in Asia, that would be bad business. We could not leave them to themselves. They were not ready for self-government. So there was nothing for us to do but to take them all, and to educate the Filipinos, to civilize them, and make Christians of them. With that decision, said McKinley, I went to bed and slept well. Spain, however, did not want to give up the Philippines. It protested that the United States had no right to demand the islands. True, Americans occupied Manila, but they did not control any other part of the Philippines. The two sides negotiated for days. Finally, they reached an agreement. Spain would give all of the Philippines to the United States. In return, the United States would pay Spain $20 million. With this dispute ended, the peace treaty was quickly completed and signed. But trouble developed when President McKinley sent the treaty to the United States Senate for approval. Many Americans opposed the treaty. They thought McKinley was wrong to take the Philippines. Opponents of the treaty included former President Cleveland, industrialist Andrew Carnegie, labor leader Samuel Gompers, writer Mark Twain, and others. They organized anti-imperialist groups in many cities to oppose the treaty. They made speeches and published newspapers explaining their opposition. Imperialism, they said, had ruined ancient Rome, and it would ruin the American Republic. They said colonies halfway around the world would be costly to protect. 
a large army and navy would be needed. They said colonial policies violated important democratic ideas upon which the United States had been built. We went to war with Spain, they said, to free Cuba from its colonial masters, not to make ourselves masters of the Philippines. Republican Henry Cabot Lodge of Massachusetts led the Senate fight for the treaty. The opposition was led by the other Massachusetts senator, George Hoare, also a Republican. Senator Lodge appealed to national pride. He urged the Senate not to pull down the American flag. Rejection of the treaty, he said, would dishonor the president and the country. It would show that we are not ready as a nation to enter into great questions of foreign policy. Senator Albert Beveridge of Ohio also spoke in support of the treaty. Senator Beveridge said the Pacific would be of great importance in coming years. Therefore, he said, the power that rules the Pacific will be the power that rules the world. And with the Philippines, that power is and forever will be the United States. Senator Hoare spoke strongly against the treaty. He said that taking over the Philippines would be a dangerous break with America's past. He said the greatest thing the United States had was its tradition of freedom. To take the Philippines, he said, would deny that tradition. It would violate the Constitution and the ideas contained in the Declaration of Independence, the idea that all men are created equal, and that government exists only with the permission of the governed. The Senate vote on the treaty was set for February 6th. It seemed that the opposition had enough votes to reject it. But several things happened before the vote. William Jennings Bryan, the leader of the Democratic Party, opposed the takeover of the Philippines. But he urged Democratic senators to vote for the treaty. Bryan was looking ahead to the presidential election in 1900. He believed that the Philippines' takeover would cause the United States nothing but trouble. He could put the blame for all the trouble on the Republicans. Then, if he was elected president, the Democrats could give the Philippines their independence. Bryan succeeded in getting 17 Democrats and populists in the Senate to vote for the treaty. Two days before the vote was taken, violence broke out in the Philippines. President McKinley, without waiting for the Senate to act, ordered the American military government in Manila to extend its control throughout the Philippines. The leader of the Philippine rebels, Emilio Aquinaldo, opposed the order. 
rebel forces prepared to fight. On the night of February 4th, 30,000 rebels attacked American forces around Manila. Sixty Americans were killed, and more than 270 were wounded. Rebel losses were much higher. News of the rebel attack caused some senators to change their minds about the Philippines. Some who had opposed the treaty now agreed with the Washington Star newspaper that the Filipinos must be taught to obey. Eighty-four senators were present for the vote on the treaty. To pass, the treaty needed a two-thirds majority, 56 votes. One by one the senators voted. Then the count was announced. Fifty-seven of the lawmakers had voted yes. Only twenty-seven had voted no. The treaty was approved. The Philippines belonged to the United States. And that's our program for today. Join us again tomorrow to keep learning English through stories from around the world. I'm Ashley Thompson. And I'm Dan Novak. 